It's a great pleasure to welcome back to the Institute of Professor Earl Fry. Uh, my introduction will be very brief, Earl, because you're well known to all of us, I think. Uh, but of course, Earl has uh, written uh, very extensively on a variety of uh, North American related economic and political questions and pursued some of these interests in public, uh, uh, public service as well over the years. And we're delighted that you're back and to uh, speak to us on uh, uh, Canada's political economy and, and uh, North American and North Atlantic context. And it is good to be back. It really is. Well, let's, let's get started. Let me give you a little bit of my background. Some of you have already mentioned I'm going to use a couple slides that uh, I've used in the past, but I like them. Uh, I'm, I'm from California, you know, even though many people on my uh, campus think I'm, I'm can a Canadian. <laughs> I'm actually born in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area and began to do work uh, on Canada early in my uh, career in the, uh, in the 1970s. Uh, going up to the University of, I received a grant to, to go up to spend a summer at the University of British Columbia. I did a sort of a little comparative book on uh, Canadian and U.S. government. Uh, then I had the opportunity to serve in our uh, equivalent to VACS, the Association for Canadian Studies in the United States. I served as president and been a visiting professor at McGill University of Montreal and have spent a lot of time uh, in Canada, to, to say the least. And then I also had the opportunity to do some government service, actually not as a bureaucrat per se, but it was through the Council on Foreign Relations in New York City. They have a number of international affairs fellowships. And I had just written a book on uh, the, the politics of uh, international direct investment. And they thought that was a good topic and asked if I would be interested in going into government. So I was in the uh, special assistant in the office of the U.S. Trade Representative. Um, in 83-84, and that's when we actually began uh, discussing the possibility of free trade between the United States and Canada. It was supposed to be sectoral. We, we just didn't feel that we could do it comprehensive. We made some progress. Uh, we actually began the meetings in December of 83 at USTR, and uh, finally came to the point that we couldn't make any agreement gettable. GATT, you remember GATT, and because we would be picking and choosing sectors, and GATT said, no, you've got to make it fairly across the board. But we made uh, really significant progress, and indeed that would set the stage for when Mulroney came in later in that decade to, uh, to set up a comprehensive free trade agreement, which we reached in 1988, went into effect in 89. Um, and so, you know, I spent this time, the USTR is part of the executive office of the president, and it was, a, it was a good experience for me. I mean, I always knew I was going back in academia, but it was a great experience for me, and my wife, Elaine, is here with me tonight, and our family, we moved to, to Washington, and enjoyed it, and we've, uh, my own university has a program in Washington, and we've headed that program five times now, so we, we know Washington, D.C. fairly well, and, uh, and enjoy it, although somewhat put off by some of the uh, shenanigans that go on. So anyway, that's my, my background. I wrote a book in 2010 called Lament for America, Decline of the Superpower Plan for Renewal, basically saying we needed to get our act together, that we were a superpower in relative decline. The big question was how steep would that decline be? And then I followed up uh, with a book in 2014 which basically said if we do get our act together, we could have a period of really significant prosperity, but still hammering on 15 uh, fault lines that needed to be uh, basically dealt with in the United States. And, and this was, if you remember the last time I, I put this up, I think uh, briefly, uh, beginning with Beltway Follies, how we make... Uh, uh, policy in, within Washington, D.C., and the problems that are going on there that have continued, and then out down to campaign financing, which has been a big issue this year. On the other hand, I have to admit that a person who racked up $150 million in campaign donations uh, had a fairly effective super PAC. Uh, he dropped out the past few days, and that was Jeb Bush. He was, you know, uh, thought to be the clear-cut favorite to win the Republican nomination. 
He got $150 million in, in donations because after Citizens United case rendered by the U.S. Supreme Court, you can basically give whatever you want almost. And particularly as you get to these super PACs and other things like that that theoretically are not supposed to be associated with the campaign of the candidate, you know, which is fiction, and the Supreme Court should have recognized that. There's just a lot of money in uh, U.S. politics. Too much, too much money. But it does show sometimes money doesn't win. And uh, so looking at these issues, the government debt, which is now approaching $19 trillion, $1,000 billion, uh, gone up dramatically, particularly since uh, 2001. And then you can see the other issues here. One, I, I can just mention briefly, health care, uh, which we go back and forth on with the Canadians. You know, the American Medical Association said, oh, we don't want anything like the Canadians have because sometimes, you know, have to wait forever to get elective surgery, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the Canadian, most Canadians really like their health care system. They're satisfied with it. There are some bumps, just like everyone has bumps in their health care system, but you know, they're spending something like 10% of GDP on healthcare. Uh, we're spending over 17%. And in terms of longevity, in terms of infant mortality rates, uh, the Canadians are superior to the United States. So we spent a whole lot of money, and in part because uh, we have some special interests, and our system really caters to special interests that make it very difficult for us to change. Obamacare, Obamacare, with all of its problems, at least is a step in the right direction, and literally millions of people have been brought on board with health insurance for the first time. But it's far from perfect. And, uh, and what I'm talking about in terms of the, the very powerful interests would be the American Medical Association, the American Hospital uh, Association, uh, the uh, basically the uh, insurance companies, because so much of our healthcare is financed through private insurance, which can be very, very expensive. Through our pharmaceuticals, as you know, we pay far more than anyone else in the, in the world for our pharmaceuticals in the U.S. And even at times, uh, U.S. pharmaceuticals, I mean, U.S.-made pharmaceuticals are sold in Canada for far less than they're sold in the United States. And uh, the way things go in terms of Capitol Hill is there's a rule that the Veterans Administration can try to negotiate because there's so many veterans to get a better price, but older people can't. You know, the, uh, basically the lobbyists for, the, uh, for basically Medicare, they're forbidden. They're forbidden by Congress to basically say, look, we represent these many millions of people. Let's bargain, lower the price. And they're not able to do that, in part because of the, uh, the campaign donations that go into Capitol Hill and basically Congress saying, you just can't do some things that really make sense, you know, that really uh, would help us to get better care at a, a much more affordable price. And so again, I, just, I go down the list. If any of these are of interest to you, you know, as we get to the Q&A, please you know, pick on them. And so the first book saying we've got to do much better, the second book saying, oh, we can do better. We could even see Renaissance America on the horizon but still basically hitting at these uh, problem areas. Uh, and we're making very little progress in most of them, unfortunately, unfortunately. Now, this is one I put up last time. And uh, again, my wife and I uh, basically raised our family in a home for over 30 years, which we recently sold. My wife tells me that we're homeless for the moment. We're going to, once we retire, we're going to get a place probably in southern Utah or northern Nevada where there's lots of sunshine. Uh, but this, uh, this young lady, uh, probably one of our students, was in Rock Canyon, which was about a half mile from where we lived. And so she was getting a very good view of what we call Utah Valley, and a view that most of us do not get. In fact, this is a second image of her up there on her little uh, uh, lounge chair and uh, doing something that I would never do, <laughs> never let our kids do it or grandkids do it, but nonetheless getting a different vantage point. And some of the things I'll talk about tonight are a little bit different vantage point from, the, uh, from this more uh, middle-of-the-road uh, perspectives that uh, you might be used to. In terms of Canada, it's been interesting. Uh, the October election, you know, uh, 
coming to power of Justin Trudeau, not just coming to power, but getting a clear-cut majority, actually coming from the third party. Liberals have really been in the dumps and to uh, becoming uh, the dominant party in Canada. And even a poll over the weekend said that if the election were held today, the Liberals might win 70% of the seats in the House of Commons. So there's still that period of goodwill uh, towards the Liberals and towards uh, Justin Trudeau. Justin Trudeau is, is very likable and uh, has been uh, sort of empathetic. Uh, eventually, of course, he's going to have to deal with, uh, with real problems and that may make it more di you know, difficult for him to maintain his popularity rating. But for the moment, he's doing very well and has a lot of support uh, across the country. Uh, the fate of the NDP, the New Democratic Party under Thomas Mulcair, uh, they're going to have a leadership conference for the New Democratic Party, which was expected to do well in the October election and did not. People opted for the Liberals instead of the NDP. And uh, he's probably going to maintain his position uh, in this leadership review, but the NDP is struggling for the moment. And we just have to see, a long time before the next national elections, but they're, they're struggling. As for the Conservative Party, which has been in power for many years, uh, uh, Mr. Harper was seeking his fourth term, which rarely happens, only happened twice in Canadian history. Um, and of course, he was, his party was defeated uh, decisively, and now we don't know who the new leader will be. It's uh, under the interim leader, uh, Rona Ambrose, and she's doing a pretty good job, but there's other pretenders out there who would like to become leader of the Conservative Party, and they may wait until 2017 to actually try to decide who will be the, uh, the permanent leader of the party. So it looks good for the Liberals, it looks very good for Justin Trudeau for the moment. But things change quickly, as you know, in politics. Uh, the Canadian economy is still very commodity-driven, as you're seeing. Um, their currency, the loonie, is sort of a petrol dollar, and, and it's really uh, gone up and down. Uh, you know, prior to the recent uh, collapse in oil prices around the world, you know, it wasn't that long ago when the Canadian dollar was on par with the U.S. dollar and actually went above par. And now with the problems in the oil patch, the Canadian dollar has actually gone below 70 cents U.S. Now with the recent slight rise in oil prices, it's about 72 cents. Uh, we've seen it actually down in the low 60 cent range of several years ago when there were worries about Quebec, its status in Canada, and would Ottawa ever balance a budget and stuff like that. But it's down, you know, it's down sort of in... Uh, the range of where it was many years ago. And a lot's going to depend on the price of oil and basic commodities and how well the Canadian dollar is going to do. And beyond that, how well the, uh, the Canadian economy as a whole will do because it's still so commodity-driven in so many ways. Uh, there's no new budget under Trudeau. It was announced today by uh, the finance minister, Bill Morneau, that the deficit uh, for this next year will probably be about $18 billion Canadian, far more than they had anticipated. And this doesn't even include what they're going to spend on infrastructure. So we may be looking at a uh, deficit in, uh, for this uh, upcoming fiscal year in Canada uh, in the range of about $30 billion. And so, but we don't know. He said they're going to announce it about a month from, from today, roughly a month from today. And we'll see how that goes. So Canada, the Canadian government, back in fairly significant deficits uh, in spending, but feeling that they have to reinvigorate the economy and, and will do this largely through uh, infrastructure modernization. Uh, it's expected that the Canadian economy will continue to be anemic in terms of growth, maybe 1.1% in 2016 in real economic growth. That's maybe at the bottom of, uh, of the G7 countries. Uh, there's still a lot of year left, uh, the calendar year, but uh, they're, they're, they're hurting. They're hurting for the time being. Interest rates, of course, that are at historic lows, and that could, be, uh, that could help if there's an economic spark out there, and particularly if uh, oil prices uh, begin to move up and commodities in general begin to move up. Uh, 
tourism is one of the few bright spots economically because more Canadians are staying home. They're staying in Canada. Because, uh, for example, if you're a, a snowbird who traditionally spends time in, uh, in Florida or Arizona or Southern California or whatever, well, all of a sudden you've gone from a, a currency almost on par with the U.S. dollar to one worth about 70 cents. So a lot of your purchasing power has really gone down. So a fair number of Canadians have basically said, that, well, we're going to have to stay home, and particularly when it comes to tourism. On the other side of the coin, you do have more foreign tourism coming into Canada, even from the United States, because of the low-valued uh, loony uh, Canadian dollar, getting more, more oomph for your U.S. dollar in the Canadian economy, as well as um, more oomph for other foreign currencies. Uh, Alberta's economy is hurting. As you know, Alberta has been sort of the linchpin of economic growth in Canada for a number of years, of course, based on, on oil and natural gas and other uh, uh, commodities. It's really hurting. The unemployment rate now is above the national average, uh, I think, first time in almost 20 years, with the Alberta unemployment rate actually going above, creeped above the uh, national unemployment rate. And they're, uh, they're going to have a very significant uh, provincial government deficit this year. And that probably will go on for quite some time. And so here's been sort of the linchpin of Canadian economic growth, particularly after Ontario tanked uh, in recent years. It's been Alberta that's been putting up a lot of money in what they call the equalization payments, the transfer payments I'll talk about in just a moment. But they're hurting. They're hurting, and anyone that's in the oil patch, and this includes Saskatchewan, uh, they're hurting. BC is doing somewhat better. BC is a lot of commodity-driven, but uh, actually getting through fairly well. And of course, a lot of its market is in Asia. They've been able to take advantage of, uh, of that market, uh, but being hurt now by the downturn in China, and we'll see what happens in terms of the BC economy. In the case of Ontario, the hope is that with a low-valued loony, that uh, Canadian manufacturing will be much more, at least the products will be much more attractive in the U.S. market, particularly if our economy continues to grow in the United States. Uh, you know, it's not that we're growing at, uh, at a great rate, but not bad. You know, we're, we could approach 3% this year. That might be a little too optimistic. And if we are growing, that's always been a recipe for uh, jobs in uh, central Canada where you have over almost two-thirds of the population, the GDP, a little bit less than that. And so the feeling is maybe Ontario will get back on its feet in the auto sector in particular and others because the U.S. market is moving forward. They have a need both for finished goods and for component parts and that Ontario may do better on, uh, and even Quebec do better because of that. We'll, we'll have to see that. The transfer payments dilemma, as you know, in the Canadian system, they each year they spend roughly 17 or 18 billion dollars going from the well-to-do provinces to the not-so-well-to-do provinces to try to equalize some of the uh, the services that would be available. And so we're at a point where this year, where Alberta is tanked, it will still be considered as a have province, and we'll have to pay money into the transfer payments. Uh, account, whereas Ontario, which is beginning to do a little bit better, will still be a recipient. So most of the Canadian provinces will be have-not provinces, as we say. And Alberta and Saskatchewan and B.C. will be, I think, the only... Oh, Newfoundland, because the Newfoundland oil, even though they're hurting too, will be the ones that have been giving money out, can still consider to be have-provinces. And there, there needs to be a change in the calculation of how they work on transfer payments in Canada. So this will be an interesting year there. Uh, federal and provincial government debt burdens, we just talked about what's going on in Ottawa. Uh, they're going up. I mean, Alberta, so many years, basically balanced budgets, actually has a rainy day fund surplus. Uh, that's changing. And Ontario, for the moment, uh, I believe is the most indebted sub-state government uh, north of the Rio Grande. That is to say, Ontario owes more than any U.S. state government owes, including California. And uh, uh, Quebec, on a per capita basis, is worse than Ontario. So not only is their debt uh, and at the federal level 
there's a growing debt among uh, most of the provincial governments as well, which has its own share of challenges. But, you know, the notion is at this time when the economy's not growing, uh, maybe you're going to have to deficit spend. But Ontario's been doing it for a long time, and so is Quebec. And uh, it just continues to grow. Housing markets are interesting in Canada, but it's nothing new to you because you have the London market, which is crazy. Um, but uh, Vancouver and Toronto in particular have been really hot markets. Uh, I think the average uh, individual home, you know, detached home in Vancouver, uh, the price is headed towards about $2 million Canadian. And a fair amount of this is foreign direct investment, and for years, much of this direct investment has come from Asia, particularly from China. And so if you sort of look at the, uh, the uh, Vancouver skyline in the evening, and particularly if you can go into some of the residential communities, you'll see a fair number of houses without lights on at all. And they're owned by absentee foreign owners. And you know the, the notion is, and even the British Columbia government is starting to look at this, is maybe something has to be done about this because we have so many homes that are out of sort of circulation, no one's living in them. And as well, they're keeping the cost of housing so very, very high. And so we'll have to see how that shakes out, particularly if we have problems in China, in the Chinese economy, what will that mean in terms of investments made in Vancouver? Uh, Calgary, not as much of the Asian influence, but still a fair amount of foreign buying, excuse me, uh, Toronto. A lot of foreign buying going in Toronto, and you're getting up to about a million dollars or so. Uh, really high, really, really difficult for young people to buy, either in Vancouver or, or in uh, Toronto, almost like young people trying to, to buy in Silicon Valley or Washington, D.C. or New York City area. It's, it's almost impossible. Whereas in Calgary, the prices are just plummeting. They're just going down dramatically because uh, of the problems in the oil patch and people being laid off. So you can see it's a very mixed picture uh, across Canada. Uh, half of Canadian parents perceive today that their children will be worse off than they were at a comparable age. We've had some of the same thing, some no same notion in the United States. So you can see we're into an era of, well, we don't feel very good about how things are going. And they're going to have to pick up. And that's, that's tough. That's tough for any government when you've got a majority of your people basically saying, you know, uh, things just don't look good in the foreseeable future. So that's just a, uh, an overview of what's going on, particularly in the Canadian economy, and you, I'll be glad to entertain questions on that. Canadian foreign policy issues, uh, there's a lot we could talk about here. The relations with the United States are still foremost there. Uh, uh, Canada continues to export uh, over 70% of all its goods to the United States, so it's really still dependent on one market economically, and of course, very close relations in NATO, as well as NORAD. As you know, the North American Aerospace Defense Command is uh, an organization in which only Canada and the United States are, are members. And so this is it's an extremely important relationship for Ottawa. Uh, we have some rather controversial policies coming out from Ottawa in terms of the Middle East and ISIS, uh, Trudeau suspending the bombings, uh, not taking part with the other uh, some other NATO allies on and bombing ISIS targets, but then saying, of course, he's going to spend more training Kurds within Syria, Iraq, and uh, and that this will spend this will cost a lot of money. It's, it's dangerous. But shifting the emphasis, and of course, this has not gone over too well in some of the uh, the other NATO capitals. But he's basically saying, you know, Canada needs a fresh start in the Middle East. Uh, aid is there, and of course his refugee policies, as you know, he came out and basically said, you know, Canada was going to take in 25,000 uh, refugees from uh, Syria in a really short period of time, really short period of time. And actually they're now right there. I mean, they took longer than he first said, but they're about there. And, you know, the United States has taken in relatively few refugees. And in the case of Japan last year, Japan took in 27 refugees total for a year. And so Canada has stood out there. And of course, it's a big issue here in Europe, no doubt about that. He, uh, Trudeau, basically uh, 
step back a little bit in terms of this timeline for getting it done. Also basically saying the emphasis would be on families and not on single young men. Um, and I was, uh, just prior to coming to Europe, I had phone calls both from the, the, the House uh, uh, Committee dealing with uh, Homeland Security and from the Senate Committee in Washington asking if I would come and testify on the Canadian refugee policy and what, uh, what could be the spillover for the United States. And fortunately, I was coming to Europe. <laughs> I didn't really want to go and testify because I know what their, their agenda was. But the notion was that's just another issue to be dealt with at the border. That if you have 25,000 refugees coming in, some of them who could be aligned with ISIS, what does that mean in terms of U.S. security? And uh, so it's, a, it's an issue that's gone beyond Ottawa. You know, it certainly is uh, uh, being talked about in the corridors of Congress. And we'll see how it works out. We'll see how it works out in, in terms of the, the refugee issues and our, any other spillover effects it might have on Canada's closest neighbor to the south. Uh, the complex relationship, just a few things here. Remember the U.S., we have about 323 million people right now. I looked at the Census Bureau figures before coming. Canada's up to almost 36 million. But you notice the differential there is about nine times. In terms of GDP, 2014, you can see the U.S. over 17 trillion, Canada about 1.8 trillion, uh, but it means that the U.S. GDP is still about 10 times larger than the Canadian GDP. So there's, it's asymmetrical in some ways. You know, we're so much bigger than Canada is, particularly in the economy, and also a superpower versus a middle power. But it's still the world's largest bilateral economic relationship. And it has been in that position for almost every year since the end of World War II. Very interesting to look at the, the, uh, how that relationship between the United States and Canada has evolved. And the United States continues to export more goods to the US, uh, to, excuse me, to Canada with its 36 million people than to the EU with over 500 million people. And it's been that way forever. It's been that way. And part of that is because of the lack of motivation on the part of U.S. companies, particularly small and medium-sized, to tackle the European market. Part of it is based on so much in the way of exchanges going on across the border in terms of automobiles, because sometimes you'll take part of the automobile, send it across the border, put a, another component part on, ship it back across the border, then again and again. And of course, all that adds up. But all you're getting at the end is one final car. So it's a little bit, you know, gimmicks in terms of how you uh, determine uh, exports and imports in North America. But nonetheless, it's amazing how big that uh, economic relationship is. And basically 35 of the U.S. states export more goods to Canada than any other country in the world. About 35 of the 50. And as you notice here in Canada, Canada, about this past, uh, 2014, 76% of all Canadian exports of goods to the U.S., that actually was going up again. It had gone down, particularly after 9-11. Now it's starting up again. And no other major nation is so dependent on access to uh, one foreign market than Canada's dependent on access to the U.S. It's really remarkable to see that. And businesses in at least nine of the ten provinces in Canada actually export more goods to the U.S. than to the rest of Canada. So it's a very, very interesting north-south economic relationship. The pipeline issues have been there. And of course, Harper pushed for a Keystone X pipeline. Obama said no to it. Uh, Trudeau has basically said he, he, he wouldn't have minded if that had gone through, but has been a little bit more laid back. And the thing that really also stands out about the pipeline issue, we have thousands of miles of pipelines between the United States and Canada. So even though everything was focused on Keystone XL, there's still a lot of oil and natural gas crossing that border every day because we have lots of pipelines. And for the moment, particularly under Obama, and I would think if Hillary Clinton were to win, she would probably maintain that policy. Uh, we will not have the XL, but there's still a lot of oil crossing the border from Canada into the United States and natural gas. Uh, the border issues are still there. There's no doubt about it since 9-11. Uh, 
the border has been thickened. A lot of people think by this time, including me, it should have been thinned again, get back to normal. But it's still very thick, uh, unfortunately, in terms of uh, transport. And it's added a lot of cost to the uh, getting goods across the border, uh, going uh, particularly from Canada to the U.S. And we could do better than that, from my vantage point. We can get smarter. We can be a smarter border and still maintain the, the, the security uh, issues. And so I would have to say there's no special relationship from Washington's pers perspective. And we used to talk about for years this special relationship between Ottawa and uh, Washington, D.C. It doesn't exist now. Uh, it's not that uh, President uh, Obama is negative towards uh, Canada. You know, he and, and uh, the, the past prime minister, uh, Harper, didn't see eye to eye on some issues. They weren't bosom buddies. Uh, Trudeau started off pretty well with Obama. Uh, Obama's been warm towards uh, Trudeau. Uh, but to say that there's a special relationship, it's really not there. Uh, Canada is still an afterthought in the Oval Office on almost every issue. And the Canadians, of course, deplore that, think it should not be that way. Uh, but that is the way it is for the time being. So still a cordial relationship. They get together from time to time. Periodically, we have the, the leaders of the NAFTA countries get together, uh, the three uh, NAFTA countries. But it still leaves a lot to be desired in terms of North American relations. And of course, add to that what's going on in the current campaign with uh, basically Mr. Trump saying that we've got to finish that fence between the U.S. and Mexico and have the Mexicans pay for it, sure. Uh, and even the governor of Wisconsin, you know, basically what we consider a border state, you know, saying that maybe we should have a border between or a fence between the United States and Canada. Absolutely ludicrous. You know, the longest border in the entire world and... Uh, Right for the moment, according to the General Accountability Office in the United States, um, we basically have control over 1% of the border. And we spent billions since 9-11 trying to fortify the border with Canada. It's a, it's a crazy task, really a crazy task. And still, we have some political leaders talking about this. And you've got to keep in mind, too, after that 9-11 attack by that group of you know, roughly 20 terrorists or so, we had eight months and even years after that, we had some very prominent uh, politicians such as Hillary Clinton and John McCain and Newt Gingrich and even the, uh, at the time, the new director of Homeland Security, uh, Napolitano, who said some of those terrorists had come from Canada. Absolutely false. Absolutely false. But they still, you know, that was the notion that some of them had to basically come from Canada to take part in the 9-11 events. So you can see the problems that were faced there uh, still. Uh, the North America, this is something uh, I'll just briefly go through. You know, what is it? You know, basically goes down to the Isthmus of Panama all the way up to the Arctic Ocean. You can see it's uh, what we have there in terms of some of the... Uh, dimensions, but NAFTA itself, the North American free trade uh, area, is the largest free trade area in the world. And also, the three economies are among the largest in the world. Again, showing there in 2014 again, you've got the number one economy in the world using nominal U.S. dollars. You've got the number 11 economy in the world, Canada, which is amazing, which is 36 million people. And then you have Mexico, number 15 in the world. And the notion is, if things go, is what many economists think will happen in the next 20 years or so, that uh, Mexico should become a top 10 economy you know, over the foreseeable future. So there's a lot of, lot of things going on in North America, a lot of potential there in terms of what can be done. Uh, again, in looking at the map, and it goes all the way down, you can see Central America, of course, is part of North America officially. But what you're seeing there in terms of even with the uh, drug cartel problems and uh, illegal immigration problems, when you look at the North American map and then contrast it with the European map, and you're looking at uh, 
And of course, you're going into the Middle East here in part, North Africa in part. What seems to be fairly clear is that the range of challenges facing regions, North America versus the EU, the problems seem to be much more uh, expansive and perhaps much more serious in the EU than in North America. Oh, we have our problems, no doubt about it. But it looks like, for the moment at least, the challenges seem to be much more significant uh, in the European context than in the North American context. That, that context that's something we need to, to keep in mind. Uh, this, I don't know if you can see it very well, something I did just a few years ago showing some of the comparisons of key indicators between Canada and the United States. And the thing that stands out here, in many of these, Canada looks very good. You know, whether we're looking at infant mortality, life expectancy, health percentage, uh, expenditures as percentage of GDP. Un unemployment rate now, of course, has changed. The Canadian unemployment rate is now above 7%. The U.S. last one in January was 4.9%. Now, we fudge a little bit in the U.S. Ours is probably, using the Canadian uh, definition of unemployment, ours would probably be close to six. But we're now below the Canadians, whereas for a number of years now they've been below us. But they have a lot of good things going for them. And particularly in the, if you look at the Gini Index, distribution of family income, there's, there's problems in Canada, but not like in the United States. And notice here at the total wealth, this is 2010, controlled by top 1% of households, Canada, this is the older figures, was about 30. U.S. was about 35. We think ours is approaching 40% now. So even though the problem of inequality and inequities is fairly significant in Canada, it's not in the same ballpark as the United States. And I think this is helping to explain why what's going on right now in the U.S. electoral campaign. I'll come back to that in just a moment. Uh, so NAFTA, again, you know about it. In Canada, of course, they want to get this agreement with the EU, CETA, you know, the Comprehensive Economic uh, and Trade Agreement. But the United States is also now negotiating with the EU what we call TTIP, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership. It's hurting Canada for the time being in terms of getting the ratification of CETA. Uh, could there be a grand bargain between NAFTA and the EU? I hold out hope, but I'm probably overly optimistic. And of course, we're, we basically have had the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, about 40% of world trade, a dozen countries or so. We've had it signed. Okay, it's been, it's been signed, it's been agreed to and signed. It was agreed to last uh, fall in Atlanta. Uh, this month, it was actually signed in New Zealand and Auckland. Uh, but is it going to be ratified? And will it be ratified in the United States Congress? That's something we'll, we'll look at in just a moment. But my, by mid-century, Asia, never know, it's a long ways away still, could account for over half of the world's population, GDP, trade, and direct investment. And the big question is, if that occurs, will the rules of the game change dramatically? And that's part of the reason why we're trying to push for this TPP, because saying, well, who, you know, who should control the rules of the game? Isn't it better to have the U.S. having the big voice, or should China have the big voice? So you, you can see what's going back and forth now. And indeed, this past week, President Obama just hosted APEC, the Asian Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum, in Rancho Mirage in California, basically trying to convince more of these nations to join the TPP and also to work together on more of the issues that would set them apart from China, particularly in terms of territorial expansion. So it's a very fluid situation, all these things that are going on, particularly in the trade arena. In terms of the CETA for Canada, I'm giving you a little bit of detail here about it, the Comprehensive Economic and Trade Agreement. Uh, took many years to negotiate. Uh, it's 1,600 pages long. Stephen Harper called it the biggest deal our country has ever made. Of course, they have the NAFTA, and they had the free trade agreement with the U.S. And Harper at the time said it was the, this was the most significant with the EU. Even the European Commission said it was the most far-reaching bilateral trade agreement negotiated to date. But they're bogged down. They're bogged down. Uh, part of it is this investor-state investor dispute settlement. You know, what can 
multinational corporations demand from member states that they agree to uh, to do a certain thing, and then maybe some of their subnational or substate units go in a different direction. What sort of compensation should be paid? This is a big issue still. It's a big one with TTIP. It's an issue with um, CETA. Now, I think if TTIP did not exist, the European Union may have let it go. Because after all, this is with Canada. We can live with Canadian companies. But when you got the Americans involved and with uh, the size of the U.S. economy, it's become much more of a, uh, of a political issue. And, you know, the, it should be good both for Canada and the EU, maybe a little bit more beneficial to the EU if you're looking at absolute dollars than for Canada. But it's something that the Canadians would like to see finished up. And uh, I think we're going to have to wait for a while. You know, particularly to see what will be the fate of TTIP. Of course, another part of it is the TPP itself, the Trans-Pacific, because the three members of NAFTA, uh, Canada, the United States, and Mexico, are all members of the TPP, too. And in some ways, the TPP, if it ever goes into effect, is a modernization of NAFTA. Indirectly, it's a modernization of NAFTA. So there's lots of things going on. And the CETA would have to be ratified by the uh, EU Council. We don't call it the Council of Ministers any longer. Uh, the European Parliament and perhaps the individual me member states. You know, maybe it will get done. Maybe it will get done. It would be nice if the U.S. the U.S. issue, the TTIP, were sort of put aside for a time. But we'll have to see. We'll have to see what happens. It won't happen overnight. CETA being ratified by the EU. Uh, the TTIP, again, you can see what it is. Uh, it was launched, uh, negotiations in 2013. We just finished the 11th round of negotiations between the U.S. and the EU in October in Miami. And at the same time, of course, as I mentioned, the Trans-Pacific Partnership has been signed, uh, but has only been ratified by Malaysia. And so what's going to happen there? And uh, quite frankly, I'm worried. I'm worried particularly in, uh, in the United States and Washington about what's going to happen there. If you happen to be someone that thinks that TTIP is uh, probably a step in the right direction, particularly in terms of the competition, the growing competition from Asia. But we'll see. Uh, the difficult issues with TTIP, I don't want to spend much time because we want to get to your comments and questions. You know, we're, we're looking at what does value-added really mean? Is there enough of it? Agricultural roadblocks, particularly uh, genetically modified uh, organisms. Again, getting back to this investor protection issue. Uh, is the timing right for the EU? Because there's a number of uh, issues at stake uh, internally at its borders. Uh, the refugee issue, etc. Would it be better to maybe put it in on the back burner? Concern about transparency has been there. Uh, and there's a, face it, a rise in European populism and nationalism, which does not lend itself to a comprehensive agreement like TTIP. And you'd have to get consensus among the 28 nation states. That would be very, very difficult. I've been doing some presentations uh, on TTIP here in Europe. I'm going to Berlin on Saturday to, to talk about it. And I was in Luxembourg a few months ago. And it's a, it's, it's a difficult issue. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, but the uh, Obama at least has the Trade Promotion Authority. And what that means is this is an agreement which would have to not just go through the Senate. A treaty has to go to the Senate, and generally, you know, two-thirds vote. This one, under the fast track, uh, the administration negotiates it, then sends it up as a pact to Congress. And they have to vote yes or no. No amendments. Yes or no. And it just needs a majority vote in both the House of Representatives and the Senate. So it should be a cleaner way of getting it through. But even with that, even with the Trade Promotion Authority, what we used to call Fast Track, it's, it's not going to come up over the next few months. There's too much going on. And the president's lame duck. And that doesn't help his, his cause very much. So keep that in mind. Uh, the vision of NAFTA, again, we're hoping to, at one time we thought it would be much larger, particularly as Jean Chrétien, as Prime Minister of Canada, was really pushing for an agreement of the hemisphere. And George W. Bush was in favor, Bill Clinton was in favor, but then, you know, 
the Brazilians had second thoughts, the Argentines did, the Venezuelans, and so we don't even, we don't even talk about an FTAA any longer. You know, an agreement that was supposed to be all of the hemisphere except for Cuba. You know, we, we made some progress, but never got it, never got close actually. So it's basically what we're, we can do among the three major North American countries. Again, a big block as we've discussed. Uh, it helps Canada and Mexico to avoid some of the uh, political influence on the part of Capitol Hill in terms of there's an agreement in place. You've got to live by that agreement. Uh, we have a dispute settlement mechanism that sometimes works to the advantage of both Canada and Mexico, not always. But some things you see happening, like the developments in the auto sector. One thing is Ontario is hoping that, you know, that really their auto sector is back on its feet and will be do much better as demand increases in the U.S. But what we've seen happening sort of behind the scenes is that a fair amount of the auto industry of the growth is occurring now in Mexico. And so Mexico is basically siphoning off some of that economic potential that was in uh, the Canadian heartland, you know, particularly in Ontario. And so that's causing some problems. There's some difficulty in, in linkages between uh, Ottawa and Mexico City, particularly on some of these economic issues. Um, and Trudeau has said he'll try to do better, you know, get along better. Uh, Harper did not disguise his... Uh, this notion that he, he bit really thought that Canada should do things with the U.S. and Mexico would come third. And remember, Canada still has uh, the visa requirements on Mexicans coming into Canada, which the Mexicans really despise. And so we'll see how things happen there in terms of the vision of NAFTA. Big differences between NAFTA and the EU. I think you're well aware of what they are. Uh, we don't have a common currency unlike the Eurozone with uh, 19 countries joining. We have very limited movement of labor across national borders. We allow uh, basically the well-educated business people to, to get a, a visa for a year or two years under NAFTA, but not like you have in Europe. Um, and so we're much more modest, much more modest with the North American Free Trade uh, Agreement than what you have worked out in the European Union. Uh, of course, it also means that the EU faces its own share of challenges right now. And lastly on that, I said that the Trans-Pacific Partnership is intended to modernize and expand NAFTA indirectly if it were ever to go into effect. Because again, Canada, US, and Mexico are also members of the TPP. Uh, this one I showed you last time. Let me just say this, that 9-11 was so important uh, in so many ways, and particularly led to the thickening of the border at a time when we were actually removing barriers. So this is the day before 9-11. Notice again, we'd had this free trade agreement that had been in effect with Canada since the 89. And then NAFTA went into effect in 94, which superseded the Canada-US free trade agreement. Now, at that time, Canada had 30 million people, had a over $1 trillion Canadian GDP. US was 285 million, over 10 trillion GDP. The Canadian dollar was worth 64 cents. So that was in part because of uncertainties in Quebec, other problems. Two-way trade in goods in 2000 was 410 billion U.S. dollars. You didn't have to have a passport to go from Canada to the United States or vice versa. All you needed was a driver's license. And, and even in some parts, particularly as you went out west, like in Alberta, Montana, that the, uh, the government agents would go home at night and literally put an orange cone in the road just to let you know you were going from one country to the other. So this literally was an undefended border in some areas. And when we talked about the world's longest undefended border, you could basically argue that with some substance, that it was a very undefended border. And then, you know, go forward about 10 years after 9-11. Well, we had basically agreed in Washington that security would trump trade, and thus NAFTA became less important. Canada was up to 34 million people, the US 312. Canadian GDP had grown, U.S. GDP had grown. Two-way trade in 2010 was 526 billion, but Canadian exports to the U.S. were actually $50 billion Canadian lower in 2010 than in 2001. Canada 
had been hurt dramatically, dramatically, from the events of 9-11 and how Washington responded to those events. And the Canadian dollar at that time was actually worth more than the US dollar. Uh, and this is another telling point. June of 2010, US visits by car to Canada were the lowest since 1972, when the US had 100 million fewer people. So here's the notion, you know, the Canadians say, wow, you know, you're over 320 million people. Come visit us, spend some money. Look at, we got this low value Canadian dollar. What's well, helping someone? But generally, Americans will not go visit Canada for a variety of reasons. And you can see how in 2010 to have lost, you know, basically 30 years of growth in, in auto traffic, basically, Almost two-thirds of Americans cannot visit Canada today because you have to have a passport. Most Americans do not have a passport. Roughly two-thirds don't, a little bit less than that. And so they can't go to Canada. They can't go, if they live in uh, Seattle, they can't go visit Vancouver, British Columbia. So they don't have a passport. Most Americans don't have passports. And they just don't have an urge to get passports. And so that's hurt the Canadians a lot. Um, We've had a six-fold increase in U.S. agents along the Canadian border, not as much percentage-wise as in Mexico, but fairly significant. Even though we think that criminal activity, however you want to define it, is one one-hundredth, the border between the United States and Canada versus the border between the United States and Mexico. And so, you know, we've thickened the borders, no orange cones, no undefended border, negative impact on supply chains if you're into the, you know, the corporate world. It's been a bad time. It really has, has hurt NAFTA and economic integration a great deal. Finally, you know, I do a lot of work on what sub-state governments do internationally. This is a little graphic, so I'm connecting the international to the local as our world becomes more globalized. And there's a lot of dimensions there. I know you can't see it too well from, from this one. But here, if the Canadian provinces and territories were nation states, this is in 2000, 2013 GDP, it shows you what they would be. You know, basically, Quebec was Denmark in terms of its GDP. Uh, Ontario was Argentina. Uh, Alberta was Malaysia. And uh, British Columbia was Algeria. This is using 2013 GDP. Uh, and federalism and the provinces and international relations still a big issue in Canada. Uh, provinces were permitted international representation prior to confederation. Some of them had offices here in London. They're allowed to do that under basically uh, you know, the British Empire. Uh, international activities of Ontario, Alberta, and the British Columbia are the strongest, but not the strongest by far, uh, is in Quebec. Quebec, even though there's been some significant cutbacks lately, Quebec still maintains 26 offices in 14 countries. It has its own representative in UNESCO and La Francophonie, you know, the, the French Commonwealth. It's now at 50 years of Gérard La Joie, and that doctrine basically says that anything which Quebec is allowed to do by the Canadian Constitution or can do in conjunction with the federal government, the shared powers, it can then take those powers and use them internationally. And so basically, Quebec has been following the Jean Lajoie doctrine for five decades now. And it's very much involved internationally, even though there have been some cutbacks recently. Has about uh, the Ministry of uh, International Relations, has a little different name now, but has about four, 500 employees. To put that into context for you, the 50 US state governments combined, in terms of what they do with their international programs, have fewer employees together than Quebec has separately on international programs. So this is important. I mean, uh, Alberta has been very active, but now is having to cut back because of the budgetary problems. Ontario cut back a few years ago. Still fairly active. British Columbia behind the other three. But they have been engaged, particularly in economic development, of course, uh, activities at Quebec going beyond that at times. Uh, and particularly in his role in La Francophonie, there was a time, there was a time when Quebec actually had more people in its general delegation in Paris than the Canadian government had in the Canadian embassy in Paris. You know, this issue has waned some now. The PQ is not doing nearly as well, the Parti Québécois. 
His leadership is questioned now, support among the people is relatively low. And so it's not the issue that was on the front burner like it was going back to, well, 1995 was the last referendum, and that was a close referendum on Quebec separating from Canada. But anyway, this is very interesting to look at international relations, particularly from the provincial government perspective. Uh, Quebec's strategy, you know, trying to maintain economic ties with the U.S., doing more with the U.S. now than it has in the past. It used to be that France was the number one target because the feeling was if there were ever a positive vote on, on sovereignty, the French government, particularly under a Gaullist government, would have been the first to recognize Quebec as a distinct nation state. So they spent a lot of time uh, negotiating in Paris. My argument to them all along as writing on it was, you know, you really should pay more attention to the U.S. because that's where the jobs are. That's where your companies are going to do well. And they've sort of come around to that in recent years. Uh, they, uh, they're trying to, they think that they have a system of dynamic federalism in play, internal development, the Denmark of the North, sometimes it's called has a fairly significant working relationship with California, particularly on climate change. They actually have, they were together in this Western Climate Initiative. Uh, you know, Quebec signed and California signed, few other provinces and state governments went along with it, but they were the two mainstays and are still working together today on that issue. And as you know, at the recent uh, climate change conference in Paris in late November into December, uh, some of these sub-state governments played a fairly significant role, particularly Jerry Brown, governor of California, and some of his sub-state uh, colleagues on climate change issues. And they went, uh, Quebec has been working with U.S. authorities to ensure a safe border because, you know, like I said, if you tighten the border, then Quebec loses access to, uh, to selling products in the U.S., or at least it becomes more expensive. And so they want to do that. Remember, you've got to go back about two decades now. There was a guy by the name of Rassam who had settled in Montreal, come from Algeria. And he had gone across Canada and tried to pass from British Columbia into the state of Washington. A very alert customs agent, U.S. customs agent, asked him to open up his trunk. And he was carrying some weapons. His intent was he wanted to blow up part of Los Angeles International Airport. But this guy, he wasn't all there. You know, he was a lone eagle, as far as we know, one guy trying to do something. But nonetheless, that stigma's always been there. And you know, the notion, wow, you had this guy coming from Montreal. He's going to do danger to the U.S. So Quebec has had to be pretty sensitive there. Because as you know, in some, when it comes to independent immigrants, Quebec actually has the voice. They can determine their own independent immigrants under certain conditions. Ottawa has given them an authority to do that. And of course, they've been looking at particularly the Maghreb region, other parts of North Africa, Francophone areas, to try to attract more people to come to Quebec because they tried France and some of the French come over and the, you know, the winters are pretty harsh. And some of them don't make it very long and go back home. But the feeling is maybe they would get more people coming from La Francophonie. But on the other hand, some of these areas are, you know, you worry about uh, terrorist activity. So Quebec, the government has been sensitive to that area. And basically saying we're working with U.S. authorities on trying to, you know, make sure that we're on top of, uh, of the issue. Okay, quickly, these are border commissions that exist between the United States, Canada, and Mexico. There's a fair amount of negotiating that goes on, not by the federal governments, but by the sub-state governments, Mexican state governments, U.S. state governments, Canadian provincial governments, and all these organizations. So there's a lot of sort of international relations going on within North America that are below the radar screen. They go on, not the national governments, but sub-national governments. And again, to show uh, at the provincial level, a provincial dependence on the U.S. marketplace, this was 212, and this was the percentage of provincial merchandise exports that went to the U.S. out of all international exports from each province. And you can see, I mean, at the time, Alberta was at 86%, and so was New Brunswick. 
Now, Ontario was up about 80% of everything it exported went to the United States. And you know, the only exception to the rule was British Columbia. And British Columbia, of course, had carved out, particularly in commodities, a fairly good trading relationship with parts of Asia. But you can see, again, how dependent many of these provincial governments are, particularly their business communities, on doing business with the United States. So this is a big issue for them. Uh, this gives you an idea. This is just a, a rear suspension assembly. And you can see just between the United States and Canada where these parts are made. You know, there's just plants all over, you know, North America, not all over, but, you know, they're both in the United States and Canada. And now what's happening is more and more is moving into Mexico as part of a trilateral uh, auto uh, uh, accord. And so it's very, very complicated, extremely complicated, what's go what goes on in terms of the movement of goods and services within North America itself. Okay, this is one thing that you remember last time I talked about this. This is Mount Rushmore, South Dakota. You can probably even recognize who the presidents are there depicted as. And I remember I showed this from the vantage point of Ottawa. You know, they, uh, they just think that Canada's not listened to enough in Washington. And as I said, not mean-spirited on the part of the Obama administration, just they got so much on their plate and not, do not pay much attention to, to Canada. And that I would like to see change, to say the least. And uh, these, these are my recommendations. I shared some of them with you last time on what we could do to try to uh, give more impetus to NAFTA. Now, the TPP is a, would be a step in the right direction if it would finally be ratified, and that's in question, even that. And then I would like to see a TTIP between the EU and NAFTA simply because it would, it would strengthen the North Atlantic economic relationship at a time when so much of the activity has been drifting uh, towards the Pacific and Asian area. But we'll have to see if that happens. Canada's major political and economic challenges in the future? Well, you know, it's got to get over the current uh, commodity <coughs> petrodollar crisis. I mean, just in the past week when stock markets went up, you can see the Canadian dollar strengthened significantly. You know, so, I mean, it needs to get up to probably at least $50 per barrel oil. Uh, Hopefully more than that from the Canadian perspective, because in the oil sands in Alberta, northern Alberta, pretty expensive proposition to uh, to basically produce oil. Uh, fact is, see, it easier in most cases to produce oil through fracking in the United States at a less expensive, uh, much less expensive cost than uh, to do it in uh, in Fort McMurray and in, uh, in northern Alberta. So that's a biggie, but that's. Some of that's beyond the control of, uh, of Canada. You know, what's going to happen in terms of commodities? Uh, Trudeau, I think, uh, you know, if problems get worse, uh, that courtship that he has with the Canadian people, the honeymoon period, you know, that will, that will be tarnished somewhat. Not to say that he's not capable of doing it, he certainly is, but it's, you know, in taking action like that, you're going to win some supporters, you're going to lose some. And Canada, you know, the unemployment rate is up, as I said, uh, the economy is growing very, very slowly. Uh, you've got the problems at the provincial level in terms of adding <clears throat> debt. You have the problems with Washington, even though the personal relationship, as I mentioned, between Justin Trudeau and, and Obama is actually pretty good for the time being. It's not doesn't mean that <clears throat> Ottawa is getting a special say in Washington. That hasn't happened. But overall, you know, Canada is a pleasant place to be. You know, it's it's generally always ranked uh, <coughs> among the top 10 places to live in the world, even though the, the winters are harsh in most parts of Canada. And so I think it will do well. You know, if I had a lot of money and wanted to let it sit for five to 10 years, I, I think I would probably see Canadian dollar get be uh, above 90 cents again, at least above 90 cents against the US dollar. And when you're below 70 at one point a few weeks ago, you know, that's a pretty good return on your investment, but you have to wait a while in order to get that. So I do have confidence that the Canadian economy will do better <clears throat> as, as time goes on. And it, politically, you know, they're getting along. Uh, <coughs> the Liberals are running high, not just in the, in the, at the federal level, but also in many of the provincial governments now. It's a good period for the Liberal Party of Canada. How long that will last, we'll just have to see. And so I'm, and the relationship between the United States and Canada will continue to, I think, you know, it'll be good. Uh, not as good as it could be, but it will be good. And NAFTA, 
you know, all three economies are growing, uh, not very quickly, particularly on the part of the Canadians now, but hopefully it will do better too. And maybe looking across the Atlantic, we'll see an even better relationship as time goes on. But for the moment in Washington and looking at the current campaign, it's almost impossible to get anything done. It really is. You know, Obama's saying, well, you know, we'll get this done uh, once we figure out who's going to be the two candidates and, and maybe even we'll do it in the lame duck session. So the election will occur in uh, November, but we still have a Congress that will be in effect between that, the election and uh, early January when we have the change in both the presidency and in the membership of uh, Congress. That's a period where you can do something, you know, because some people are on their way out. Why couldn't they vote for, uh, you know, for the TPP or whatever? But I'm, I'm skeptical for the time being. It's, things are really, really bogged down now. They've been for a long time, but there's no light at the end of the tunnel for the moment uh, to try to get some of this done. So it could well be, and uh, in 2017, we'll have Hillary Clinton maybe as... President of the United States, we'll see what happens. Uh, you know, slowly or surely things will probably get a little bit better, but it's 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 not the best of times, economically, politically, environmentally, whatever. So let me just stop there, and I'm sorry I rambled on. Uh, I'd like to take your questions and comments.